Hello, welcome to Postcolonial Space. I'm Masood Raja. And what follows this introduction is a webinar that I had conducted previously, a live webinar, and I thought I should edit it and make it available to a wider audience. So without further ado, here is an edited webinar, and I hope you enjoy it. Imagined Communities by Benedict Anderson. So the book came out in 1983, and it was a huge book. Anderson previously was also already a pretty established scholar. He and three of his colleagues were already famous, even as graduate students, because they had published an article in 1971. But the article was researched in the late 60s in Indonesia and had dispelled all the narratives that the Sukarno regime had built about a certain uprising. And because of that, they were all evicted from, from Indonesia and they had to come back to America. So Imagined Communities was the first major text that challenges certain organic concept of nations, which we called organistic nationalism or mechanistic concepts of nationalism like the Leviathan and others and argues it starts with, you know, three things that he is arguing. Now, if you fam if you have read the book, you will know that at the very beginning of the book, Anderson starts with three things that are specific to nationalism, right? And what are those three things? That nationalism is a recent phenomenon. So we have Dr. Naila Sahar here. I will let her introduce the class first and then go on. So my class already knows that uh, today we have a class with Dr. Raja, a very eminent scholar of post-colonial studies, uh, teaching at the uh, University of North Texas. And we are very lucky to have him here with us. And uh, we have been learning a lot, lot for him, from him. And I hope that today's lecture is going to be amazing. I would ask uh, the class to keep on please asking the questions in comments so that, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Raja, after his lecture, he could address them as well. So thank you, sir, for giving us oh. your time. We can continue. Okay, thank you. Okay, so thank you so much, Dr. Sahar. So uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, also, it's always a pleasure to interact with my Pakistani friends and students. So as I was saying that it, it was a huge book. So in the beginning, in the introductory part, he starts with three claims, right? One is that nations, nationalism, nation states are a new phenomenon, but each one of them imagines themselves to be ancient, creates the mythologies of a past. So the idea is that they always have this, what he calls, they imagine themselves in an empty homogenous time, a time that the whole nation seemed to have shared. And then from there, they move into the serial time in which the nation actually exists. So it's a new phenomena, a recent phenomena, but every nation thinks that it's it has ancient roots and it existed long ago. I mean, think of Pakistan. It came into being in 1947 or, uh, you know, a lot of our historians would, Pakistan was in Banatha, Muhammad bin Qasim, Jai, Sat Sobarami, Sindh mein dakhil huye. 
We want to think of Mohenjo-daro and Harappa and the Indus River civilizations as Pakistani civilization because it's kind of imagining that we have always existed. That's what he's saying in part one of the one attribute of nations is that it's a recent phenomena, but most nations imagine themselves to be ancient, to have a long history. The second one is that nationalism in the current age is universal. Every person, every human being belongs to one nation or the other and claims that identity. Some of us belong to two, like people like me. Okay. And then the third claim that he makes is that nationalism is an idea for which people are willing to die. People are willing to put their lives on the line. And uh, famously in his book, He also claims that no one will do that for EU or European Union, but for their nation, they will do that. So these are the three attributes that he talks about in the very beginning. Now, I had already argued against his third claim in my first book because my idea was that now there are supranational identities for which people are willing to die. And we've already seen it. My last book was on one of those entities called ISIS. And there is this competition between the pull of the national identity and the return of the large dynastic imaginations of how the world ought to be run. We'll talk about that in a minute. So these are the three things that he talks about. And then he goes, is that what are the enabling conditions? What happens in the world for the rise of modern nationalism? And that that there too, I kind of slightly disagree with him, but I'll first give you what he says. First of all, the pre-nationalistic idea, the world existed under dynastic rules. These were kings who governed large territories and thought that that they had the divine right to rule. Second, all these empires or dynasties had a centralized sacred language, Arabic, Latin, right before that, Greeks, the Romans. So there was a dynastic rule, mostly divinely sanctioned, right? And then they had a centralized language. And the people believed that the origin of humans and the world was at the same time, that the world comes to be and the humans are there. There was no claim of evolution and we joining the world way later. Okay, now it's these three practices and ideas that die out, that are destroyed, and that gives rise to the modern concept of nations. Now, unlike people like Ernest Gellner, uh, theorists of nationalism, uh, people like even Anthony D. Smith, and quite a few others, I have some lectures on them on my channel, who claim that the nationalist, the origin of nationalism is Europe and it is France and England, right, 17th century, and that's Eric Hobsbawm's work on nationalism. What Anderson is suggesting is that no, the actually the nationalism as we know it, nationalism connected to a nation state emerges outside Europe. 
and it emerges in the western hemisphere in america in brazil even in haiti right these are the people who claim their own national identities in opposition to their mother countries and then it travels back to the metropolitan where france england and others then shape themselves into national governments but they are still also empires and then that idea travels to the colonies that's the cartography that he give, gives of the rise of modern nationalism he does he call it the imagined communities okay because what he's trying to suggest is that there is no organic natural nation right nation is an imagined community and the example that he uses is that if you're from any country and if you find out that something happened to a pakistani somewhere or an american somewhere you feel a certain kind of affinity you feel a certain kind of anguish how do you feel that even if you might have never met this person right and that's where he says that the print capitalism plays a huge role what does he mean by print capitalism the rise of printing press it does a few things right first of all the printing press in europe destroys the dynastic languages their monopoly because more since it's driven by capitalistic demand and the printers want to publish things that more and more people should be able to read so they start publishing in what were called the vernacular languages german right italian french english so what the printing press does is it creates a reading public also it enables circulation of knowledge and circulation of knowledge in vernacular languages languages which were considered regional and that is when the national languages emerge english emerges as a language and then two other genres of writing emerge right the first is the the newspaper and what is peculiar about the newspaper is that it they always have a national character but they may not contain just the national news on one page on one broadsheet on one hand you'll see a national headline then something happening elsewhere in the world and it's that experience of opening that newspaper as a larger community and imagining immediately knowing where you belong that that is the imagined community me doing it in my over my morning coffee you doing it in your home so that is how print capitalism creates this idea this imagination of a nation the second is the novel as a genre of right right so i think it's i used to remember the page number i think it's page 32 where he's talking about now an indonesian writer right he gives us two instances two speeches by two leaders one of them is not speaking in nationalistic terms the other one is appropriating the vocabularies of nationalism from europe and translating them into the local parlance right that's how he's he's saying that nationalism gets appropriated by local leaders but that it's in the what he says is it's in the pages of a novel when you follow the movements of a main character that in the process of doing so you also start becoming a part of that nation that national landscape that is being presented there and so that's what he means by imagined community
And so the more you read about, you know, the novels about characters set in the setting, what you call your nation, more and more of it you imagine to be a part of. So these are some of the things he's talking about in the book. And I, I can answer any question about that. Now, Anderson also has other works, right? So one of the other most important works that he does, and I'm forgetting the title of it, it was a book chapter in which he also talks about diaspora nationalism. That how is it that these large diasporic communities in metropolitan cultures, like the Jewish community here, the Hindu community here, even the Muslim community here, they always feel connected to the so-called motherland from where their parents came or they came. And part of it is the metropolitan pressure itself that kind of heightens that identity, maybe some form of longing for the primary culture, but also that most of these people tend to be more chauvinistic and conservative than their counterparts in the actual nations where they came from. And they invest heavily in those kind of nationalistic projects. So that also comes from Benedict Anderson. So overall, nation as an imagined community gives us, the literary scholars, this tool to take the theories of nationalism and then emphasize the role of imagination and the act of reading itself, and then read the novels from that point of view. Now, I would like to point it out here, and I've done it in some of my published work as well, is that actually Timothy Brennan had also published an essay in Homi Baba's collected essays on nation and narration, in which he also talks about the role of imaginative literature in creating national consciousness. I have used his work and I think his work preceded Anderson's a little bit. But in his view, he's not imagining the role of the print capitalism or the novel or the reading public as Benedict Anderson does. So these are some of my views on Anderson and I apologize if they're not clear because I, I don't have access to my books right now. Bring the first question up. So to become a part of an imagined community is much like subject positions that become part of dominant discourses I don't know. I mean, here, discourse, we are always in a discourse, right? So whether dominant or not, you can live in a nation and be part of a non-dominant discourse. You could be a minority group who feels not part of the nation. And that's another discursive position. That's another discursive identity. So the larger discourse, let's say if you are in Pakistan, I'm a Pakistani, that's discursively produced. What does it mean? You decide you must have an other so you impugn all your failures to powers outside. Maybe that's that's a discursive framework. But within those larger discourses, there, there are buried discourses. There are silenced discourses. How do women imagine themselves as Pakistanis? So yes, idea of nation then in one way or the other is also discursively produced. It depends on who has defined it, what texts are we using, what texts are being read, who has the power to pronounce what a nation is, all of these discursive frameworks play a role in, in our imagining of a nation. Good question, though. So if a Muslim from India dies somewhere outside or in India, being in Hindus will never feel... Well, that's a huge generalization, and I disagree with it. Yes, if, it's, if you're talking about fundamentalist right-wing Hindus, absolutely not, right? But that's the case for fundamentalist right-wing Muslims, too. If you're a 
Wahhabi militant, you won't care if I'm a Shia and I am dead, or you won't care if I'm a woman and I am dead. So it, it's a subject position. But if you are a liberal Hindu and you're part of the Congress party, you're part of the educated, or not even educated, the 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 left, right? You absolutely would consider Muslims your fellow citizens. You will probably cry. You will die. So this is a myth that we Pakistanis have created, because we take the worst of other groups and amplify it and generalize it. So I completely disagree with that, and I have reasons for it. And my main reason being that it's just like what you are doing is exactly what the American conservatives and right-wing pundits over here do. They pick up the worst examples of Muslims and then generalize it to all the Muslims, as if all Muslims are terrorists, as if Muslims are not capable of empathy for other than Muslims. So that's exactly the same thing. And I would. Uh, definitely request you to you know uh, stop thinking in these generalized terms and and hone your thought to a point where you don't have to scapegoat a, a whole group of people and generalize them just to feel good and the other thing is if you are relying on these generalizations other people are also making generalizations about you those are racist how do you fight them you can't have one generalization to argue your own point and then say don't lump all us Muslims. Not all of us are terrorists. That's not how it works. Counter discourse always is subtle to specificities of people's situation. Now, had your question be, been the right-wing fundamentalist Hindus probably will not feel that empathy, I would have agreed with you. So remember, these generalizations, they only weaken your argument and make you look not very convincing. Next question. You talked about Uma. Uma as a geographical. Yeah, it was. The look, the concept is imagined that it's a one community of all the Muslims in the world who believes in one religion, practices it according to that. So there is that imagination, and maybe there is fraternity and solidarity. But we also imagine that it existed at a time. There was a geographical empire. It had the same body of law. It had a central leadership. So both of those systems come combined. But the idea that all Muslims are a brotherhood and a sisterhood is deeply ideological. It comes from religion. And so we imagine the Ummah. Now, when you technically look at it, it doesn't exist. And maybe part of it is because of nationalism and part of it is because regional identities won over over the larger dynastic identities or identities of Uma. Will it ever happen? I don't know. I, I would love to see a world in which all of us can travel freely from one part of the world to other because I think in planetary terms, so the planet belongs to every single human being and animal that lives on it. And nationalism to me is kind of drawing lines on the map and and making the world a hard place and controlling people's movement. So I would I would rather not have nations, but I would rather also not have religious or other empires or ummas. I think one humanity on a planetary scale would work much better. But you know, who am I? No one listens to me anymore. Anyway. 
so so umma is a divine community yes people imagine it like that but then what is a divine community i mean there is no definition of umma in the quran there is only the definition that all the muslims are brothers and sisters right and if that is the fraternity that muslims want absolutely then it becomes that kind of divinely ordained or divinely articulated community but then there is you know it's not like we are the ones who came up with it i mean think of the Jew, uh, jewish diaspora okay 2000 years of you know persecution all over the world and they still maintain their jewish identity their idea of what constitutes being a jew through rituals through memory through readings of the torah right through synagogues so do you think we muslims have a strong concept of divinely ordained identity no one has it stronger than the jewish people 7 million of them were killed in holocaust and they still retain the idea of a loose you know jewish identity and then the christians have it too you know okay what does catholica means it means universal so long before we muslims came along and decided that we were going to be an umma the concept of the, of the catholica existed the concept of the jewish larger identity existed and then you know other identities so yes it can be divinely ordained but there are other divinely ordained supranational identities too okay here's another question by haroon my question is that is is imagine community a result of the sense of resisting against a certain idea or or is it the reason behind the i honestly don't know i mean for anderson the idea of the imagined community and the rise of national identities is predicated upon the fact the three things that he highlights whose function is weakened right so the dynastic empires die out the sacred languages are replaced by what used to be called vernacular right and the third is of course rise of print capitalism so what he is saying is there is a transition from these larger modes of thinking identity to national identity right so in that sense the idea would be that we transition into national identity but on the other hand that doesn't presuppose that we can't think in supranational terms or we can't build larger than national identities after all you know there is a european union it's not just an imagined community it has a body of law it has a parliament it has open borders so people have retained their national identities but have also created these supranational entities which actually function so faizan has in your opinion what elements that are responsible for hybrid identity of a like french algerians so i mean uh, there are no longer any people no or they were called the french algerians because they all left and they burnt half of the country when they left but at that time when the, the algeria's case was interesting because the french never saw it as a colony the french saw it as part of france that's why it was so hard and so politically fraught with danger for france to let algeria go 
right so the french algerians who lived there even though they lived in their separate towns you can read fanon for that but they thought of themselves as french the algerians had representation in the french parliament right so when de gaulle finally decides to let go of algeria and algerians will win their freedom there is a huge constituency in france right that is opposed to that and the reason was that they saw themselves as french as well as as algerians now remember when the when the settled white settlers french settlers from algeria leave algeria they pretty much burn everything hospitals schools the buildings that they, so algeria was one of the very few nation states that emerges that had to build even the infrastructure so did they think of themselves as algerians i don't know i mean they thought of themselves as french and most algerian elite also thought of themselves as french right but that they also thought of themselves as arabs right so i think on the part of the natives the identities were more hybrid especially the elite because they were arab but they were also french i don't think so that the the settlers the european settlers in algeria thought of themselves as arabs they probably thought of themselves of algerians right but i think they pretty much thought of themselves as french but their identities were hybrid they were living in a culture which was hybrid right so i mean think of it who comes from there camus comes from there right derrida comes from there these are the people who grew up in french algeria derrida is a, a french jew who was raised in algeria right so that how hybrid can you be in your identity is globalization also i'm and i don't think so i mean globalization is a political economic and cultural right so the economic globalization is reality as we exist in it it has rules it has laws of trade it impacts our lives and it exists it's tangible right cultural globalization maybe part of it is imagined when we imagine that globally we are all humans we have come together so those are the imaginative aspects of it but i think the imagined community part as we draw away from economics and politics and move into the realm of culture and that's where we imagine a globalized world in which all of us can live with dignity as you know fellow human beings but as neoliberal globalization itself as an economic system with political ramifications is pretty real right and we can think of it differently that's where imagination comes but it exists you know viscerally it impacts our lives good questions but you can uh, when you use benedict anderson you can you know you can argue how to like okay if you're reading a pakistani novel written by a pakistani author what kind of an imagined community would emerge right you know if you are reading a pakistani novel in english or if you're reading you know khuda ki basti or nadar log or udas naslein you know these are the novels of my own time uh, and intezar hussain or banu kursia even then you can see what kind of an imagined pakistan what kind of a view of lahore let's say raja gid would create 
right? When you read the parts of Lahore, that imagined community is what you feel a part of, right? And it also is a part of Pakistan. Arun, question: I feel like imagined communities like Muslim Ummah and Orthodox Hindu, which is becoming more and more obvious, are a result of hatred towards what they don't believe in. Um, I won't say hate. It's like the idea is to seek, you know, some form of social identity, right? Now the problem with nationalism has always been that that it must seek an other. Now there are nations that have complex national identities which can live with with the differences. Now if you look at the Indian Constitution. the reason they have been so successful was because they were able to cobble together a constitution which accounted for the diversity of india right and which didn't let it lapse into a majoritarian regime with very strong states rights so if you look at the hindutva movement or the right wing hindu fundamentalists they they want a majoritarian state in which the dictate of the majority is what everyone else has to follow and that's destroying the beauty of india right india is one of the most complex democracies in the world and one of the most successful ones too right let's not forget that it's very easy to just you know impugn everything onto india it's one of the most successful post colonial nation states with the most complex culture right and they did that through their constitution and because their leaders knew that they could not build it into a one religion state even though you know they did implement hindi and all that right as a, so hindu fundamentalists what are they retrieving they are retrieving the concept of mahabharat that preexisted the advent of muslims right that's the history they want to mobilize and that is a supranational hindu identity what are they mobilizing it against against the nation state itself and when they are doing it so what it must destroy it must destroy the consensus of a multi ethnic multi religious nation state right and whether it's of hatred or distrust i don't know but the idea is that they are retrieving a certain historical ideal against as the nation state as it exists against the constitutional civic state changing the civic structures to that so maybe there is some hate involved there too it's just like you know our taliban brothers and sisters right uh, they have this idea of islam they have this idea of islamic identity the borders do not matter to them so they feel that they are justified in coercing a whole nation into following their path right uh, because their idea is that you know they are right right and that's why and this is slightly off the point that's why the the verse that we usually think is peripheral to the quran law ikraha fi din there is no coercion in religion is so crucial and it it struck me like about 3 years ago when i was thinking about it because if there is coercion if someone puts a gun to your head and tells you to pray and you do that you have committed shirk because you did it of the fear of that person right that's why there is no coercion in religion 
every action that we follow should not be of the fear of people it should be from the fear of god because if you're doing it because of the fear of people those people are forcing you to commit the most unforgivable sin which is shirk Kurds are an ethnic group native to a mountainous region of western asia which spans yeah three countries and they imagine themselves as a nation right and they have this imagined history it relies on the history islamic history salahuddin ayubi and all and then they are divided into three nation states you know parts of turkey parts of iran for actually parts of iraq uh, and parts of syria so but yes as as a as a as a imagined community that thinks of itself as a nation they constitute a nation right uh, now the question is can they move to the next phase and get a territory right because remember what anderson says is that nations have defined territories right and they end and they begin so they need to have a geographic territory that they can call their own and where they are sovereign right they govern themselves so that's another criteria so how can they claim themselves as a, because they they have a history they have an ethnic identity right and they also have a history of persecution you'll have to go outside of benedict anderson to imagine their nationalism you'll have to go to ernest renan or uh, people who who tell you that what role a historic imagination plays in thinking of yourself but they have a history and they have so they have objective differences from people with they live in and then those objective differences become subjective in politics right so they have leaders who want a separate country they they claim to be culturally different from their arab counterparts and then they are also ostracized by the arabs in in and the turks and everyone else that further enhances their idea of a communal identity so there are a lot of Uh, theories of nationalism so you'll have to figure out which one applies to really under- understand it but imagined community in one way or the other will apply do you think that concept of imagine must not exist simply what is your stance upon i have no stance i mean uh, to me concepts are tools right i'm a scholar and a teacher concepts are tool theory is as deleuze famously says a box of tools you want to open a text you use it you don't use it you just throw it away and move on i i have never given my allegiance to one single way of thought one single theorist sometimes i'm a marxist sometimes i'm a cultural critic sometimes i use foucault so imagined community is a tool i will use it if it's useful i have used it when it was useful when it's not useful i'll move on to some other theories it's good to be uh, you know peripatetic it's good to not owe your allegiance to one system because then you can think on the edge of thought because when we become part of one theory um, said would famously call it when affiliative structures become filiative when they become primordial when we was like i can't think that thought because i'm marxist no i'm more eclectic so yeah it exists it's useful where it's not useful you move on to the next theory 
thank you. It was a wonderful, wonderful lecture. I wanted my students to look back at this one quotation, and I would like you to say something about it. If there is, I mean, like if you could elaborate it further, which of course you can. Uh, there is one. There is one big quote of Anderson here, which has been quoted over and over again, where uh, Anderson says. Uh, that I propose the following uh, definition for nation. It is imagine political community. Mm-hmm. So you know there is not one thing on which is made. It's political community. Imagine both inherently limited and sovereign. Yeah. So Dr. Raja, how can it be inherently limited and sovereign at the bo- at both so times, that, like simultaneously? That, so that's a very good question. So so it's. imagined as we talked about limited because it must have a territory right a geographic territory and and within that it it should be sovereign it should be able to decide its own so what he's conflating then is the idea of nation and the nation state itself so so it's a political community because it must have a political system right so we become nations that's why when anderson talks about rise of nationalism he's talking about the western hemisphere because here america haiti brazil these are the nations that actually are not just fighting that oh we are americans so we should have a separate nation they they are they are part of you know not the haitians but others they are part of the same uh, ethnic and racial group but their fight is political they have a territory and they they imagine themselves as a nation we are americans we are brazilian and three they want to be sovereign in that territory in opposition to the mother state from where they had come so what he means by that is that to be to be a fully constituted nation as we imagine it these are some of the basic criteria that it must meet is it must be a political imagination of the nation thinking of myself as a pakistani american or whatever and it must be limited limited in a sense that it must have a territory which has a border and you know the moment you cross it that you're not within the body of your nation and three that it should be sovereign that it should be able to make its own laws now all of these things are debatable because the same anderson who writes about this also goes on and writes about diasporic nationalism right so that means that you can leave your nation and live elsewhere and still be a part of it right but then there are other theorists theorists of nation and not nation state and nationalism who argue that there can be nations within nations right but to argue that then we will have to get away from this definition because then it can't be they they should be sovereign and limited then it will be they should have a shared culture they should have a shared imagination of the future and if you read let's say like anthony d smith i think yeah he not anthony d smith there is another theorist who i cited in one of my books who talks about how does the idea of nationalism emerge in certain cases is that if there are two communities living together under the same system they always have objective differences right and when they have those objective differences they live with them but when politics enters that those objective differences are subjectivized and when those objective objective differences are subjectivized that's when 
political national consciousness emerges. So that was Muslims and Hindus. This idea of irreconcilability of Muslims and Hindus was a political concept. It wasn't an organic concept. How do we start thinking that Hindus and Muslims could, their thoughts were irreconcilable because politics entered that. Before that, they lived in the same communities, right? They pretty much respected each other as individuals. Hindus went to their own temple. Muslims went to their own mosque. When it was the time for the prayer, the Hindus never beat, played their music and all. They even do that now for each other, right? But when when we came up with what we are ironically called the two-nation theory, right? <laughs> the idea was that that idea of two nations needed to be constructed ideologically and politically. It didn't exist organically. These communities had lived together. They had died for each other in battles and wars, right? If you if you read the account of the rebellion in Awadh, when Hazrat Mahal rides, in, uh, rides into battle, most of our generals are Hindu. So these examples are always there, but politics then tells us this thought must be excluded to create an exclusive idea of the nation. So, yeah, I, I disagree. I mean, where he says that... Uh, you know, people won't die for anything other than a nation. Like his famous example is who would die for EU, the European Union. And we have seen people dying for ideas larger than nation states and uh, nations, you know, and it's not just Muslims who are doing that. There are Christian missionaries who go out in dangerous places and die for a cause. There are people you know, Marxists famously died for each other. I mean, think of where Che Guevara died, right? Was it in Bolivia, I think. That wasn't his country. He was from Argentina. And then similarly, if you look at the current international terroristic groups, all of them are supranational groups. So I don't think so that this idea that nation is the only symbol for which people are willing to die holds because there are supranational entities for which people die. And I don't think so that should be the standard. I mean, my standard would be that it's, it's a constant thing or an idea for which people would want to live for. And, but that's my idea. I'm not Benedict Anderson. Uh, I'm just an obscure scholar sitting in Texas. Even my own colleagues don't take me seriously. So don't worry about that. Was Benedict Anderson a Marxist? No, uh, not a Marxist. Uh, mostly culturalist yeah okay so i'm going to stop here because it's eight o'clock so we've been going on for one hour but thank you good questions and i'm so proud of dr sahar that she is giving you all a good education so any final words thank you so me? much it, it was wonderful it was wonderful and i hope everything is so much clearer and you have been so generous dr raja to all of us in academia in Pakistan, I think your services are, they need to be acknowledged oh, all the time you. because not everybody is like you is always available to help and to teach oh, like this. Welcome. So thank you so much. So for waking up in the morning oh, yeah. and uh, joining us, yeah. <laughs> it's not easy waking up in the morning. I know that. Yeah. So yeah, okay. it's, it's been very, very eye-opening discussion today. That's all. Thank you so much for all your good questions and Stay safe and take care of each other. Khuda Hafiz. Goodbye. So this concludes this edited version of the webinar. I hope it was useful to you. 
If you have any questions or concerns, please feel free to send them my way and I'll try to address them and answer them. Uh, I will keep posting more such materials both on the YouTube channel as well as on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today and as always, take care and peace and love.